0: This is a wonderful book, and uh, I was obviously uh, very happy. I'm always going to be happy to come here and share and, and be a part of this process, but I, I enjoy Exodus. There's a lot of little nuances in there that we get some first things that we get about God that he reveals to us in his word, and certainly to Moses and to the people of Israel. Uh, so we will, we will get into that here shortly. Let's open in prayer, and we'll get started this morning. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious, and you have decided to reveal yourself to us through your word. We thank you that you have given us faith uh, for those that are believers in Christ, that your Holy Spirit dwells within us, that we can understand your word. We know that not many wise and not many noble were called, but yet you have decided to call the foolish things to bring and to confound the wise. And we are grateful that you have called us. We thank you so much for this opportunity to open your word and to to survey Exodus. I pray that you would open our understanding, open our ears to hear. And I thank you that you would be glorified later on in just a, just a little while as we gather together to bring you worship and to praise the name of your son and to, in you. We thank you that you have given us the opportunity uh, to know you and to know you forever. And I thank you for that blessing. And this morning we look forward to opening your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I told Jay that my Hebrew would not be as good as his. And so I'm, I'm going to uh, butcher some Hebrew words for fun. For all eternity, I think. You can look it up later. But I do want to read from time to time. I remember Steve from time to time reading Bible Training Institute and what the reason for us together uh, this morning is. It's to proactively accelerate the spiritual growth of Grace Bible Church for the purpose of knowing God more, uh, knowing God more intimately and becoming more effective servants of God in the world. And so that is the purpose of us being here Uh the goal in Titus chapter two is for the older men to teach the younger men and the older women to teach the younger women how to be godly and to how to fear God. And there's also a blessing down in Titus chapter two, which is we're waiting for the appearing of our savior. And so that's the reason we gather. That's the reason we obey. That's the reason that we learn. And so this is a blessing to be able to do that in in, in obedience to him. So to, as introduction, introduction to Exodus, the Hebrew is this is fun. The Shemoth? How about that? I don't even know. That's close. Uh, it means Exodus means in Hebrew, and these are the names. And there's a reference to Genesis forty six eight in the Greek, which is a little bit easier. Exodus, uh, E X O D O S. It means a way out or a departure, and that's found in nineteen verses one in the in the I think it's Septuagint, the LXX. Uh, I also uh, like the the, the verb. Uh, the word Exodus is also found in 2 Peter 1.15. And that's when Peter uses it to talk about his departure, his, his leaving this earth. And he uses the word Exodus. And so that is kind of the basis for the terminology that we're getting. It's very exilic. Uh, it is the idea of not being here and being somewhere else. And so that really does uh, describe Israel very well. Uh, they were in slavery, in a place that was not theirs. And God took them completely out through the Red Sea As we learn in Exodus, who is the author? Very simple, right? It's Moses. Uh, I wanted to read to you a very important part. A very simple scripture that Jesus uh, alludes to in John chapter five, verse 45 through 47, because there is an important point here that God wants to make. And he makes it very clearly to the he's talking to uh, the talking about the witness of Christ. He's talking to the to the Jewish leaders, and he says in verse 45 of John five. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Imagine you're a Jew and you're told and you know Moses better than anybody in the world, and yet Jesus tells you, You don't know Moses, because you don't even believe that he was talking about me. And I, I thought of myself here, I believe Moses, and I've never met the guy, don't have any heritage to him, I'm not Jewish. But I believe him. I believe him very firmly. I believe in the the Christian account. The the, I'm sorry, the creation account. I believe in the Exodus. I believe in all of these writings of Moses. And it's because I have the Holy Spirit and I'm and I'm one with God. And so, us as believers as well, we believe Moses. And so, yet the men that knew Moses the best, uh, in their own wisdom, didn't know Moses at all. And then we also have a scripture uh, that demonstrates that Moses is the author in Exodus chapter seventeen, verse four. And it's a um, 17 verse 14. I'm sorry. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So there's a a reference to Moses sitting down and making sure that everyone remembered that God was done with Amalek and to pass it through to to future generations. Who is the audience? And I, I remember I'm thinking back to Steve's steadfast conference. And thinking about his introduction there, I think we were at Valley Baptist Church, and his introduction was, this was written to the Jewish people out on the plains of Moab before they entered into, into the new territory, into their, into Canaan. And so this was written to a people in a completely godless world, people who sacrificed their children, people who were burning their children, people who were wicked and evil. And God says, I'm going to make a people for myself, and I'm going to tell them about creation I'm going to tell them about their heritage. I'm going to tell them about where they come from. And I'm going to tell them where they're going. And I'm going to do this because I am God. I am Yahweh. And I am going to tell the world the truth. And what we hold in our hands is not is not historical from secular humanism. What we hold in our hands is truly what God has told us is the truth. And so I know the account of creation. and I know the account of the Jews. And I know the purpose of why God has called them. And that's because he wanted to make a people that would obey him and live differently than the rest of the world. And so the audience is these people. And they're about ready to see God work a ma- another another miracle in their presence when they cross into Jordan. Where do you think we're at? In or Okay. Nope. We'll keep going. Uh, so who is the audience? The second generation. Because you realize the first generation has already started to die. Right? So Moses is writing this before they cross the Jordan into Canaan. So this is 40 years after they've been exiled from, from, uh, from Egypt. And so all the sons and daughters are now now adults. Uh, those that are under, over 20 are now almost 60. And, and Moses is saying it's time to go in. Joshua is getting prepared to take them in. So it's the second generation is the who. That's the audience that is, uh, that is hearing these words. So what time, when are we? Exodus was probably written shortly after Genesis around 1406 BC as the wilderness wandering was coming to an end. And if you remember, they crossed the Jordan, right? They're, they're going to a high, a very high water season and they, they end up crossing on dry land. Uh, I believe that's correct. Yes. Uh, The first generation is passing off the scene. And the second generation was taking up the mantle. 1406 BC is 40 years after the Exodus. So remember that 1446 BC, that was the Exodus from Egypt. It is a very key date for the the conservate uh, scholarship. Scholars who take the Exodus from Egypt to be 1446 would identify themselves in the conservative camp. Those who don't usually lean liberal. And what I find more important than any of these things is that for us folks in the church, we simply accept God and his word. And we accept that it was at a time period when it was. But for those that are looking in deeper, which is what we are doing here 1446 B.C. is that time. Okay, so we are, uh, where are we? This book is the second part of the five-part series written by Moses. And again, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're in the second second book here. The book was written in the wilderness of Sinai. And uh, we also remember that Moses did not enter into the promised land. So Moses is pretty much at his stopping point. He'll go up on the mountain. Uh, at the end of this time, uh, but he's not going in and uh, he'll have to wait until his re- he's resurrected. Remember that Israel is poised to take the promised land. They've been commanded to go in. God has commanded them to go and to subdue and to take out the, the evil people that are there. Uh, of a number of nations. And so what we have going on is uh, that Exodus starts at about 1876 B.C. Uh, and then. It ends up with the building of the tabernacle in 400, I'm sorry, in 1445 BC chapters one and two cover about 400 years, chapter three, I'm sorry, chapter three to the end of the book covers about two years. So we, we start with a big bang and then we show up in Moses's life and we're ready to to bring the children of Israel out. What is the why of this book? This book is the, this book is the what of God's kingdom. So, so it is, it is God's kingdom plan for Israel. And remember that Genesis is all about the who of God's kingdom. Who is the seed? Who are God's people? We learn about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We learn about Abraham's seed. We learn about creation. We learn that Joseph is the one that is preserving, uh, the brothers, uh, Jacob's, Jacob's children that are not very good people to start with their lives. Uh, very wicked men, but yet God reforms them. God changes them. But he uses Joseph to preserve Israel. And they are preserved there for about 400 years. So Exodus is the what. Leviticus is the how. How will God's kingdom be established? Through holiness, right? That's Leviticus. And Numbers is the when. When will his kingdom be established? And that would be after 40 years of wandering. Deuteronomy is the why. If you guys remember uh, any of the sermons we've had on Deuteronomy, God is, God is establishing a kingdom for himself so that his people will love him with all their heart and serve him and fear him all their days. God just des- describes for us in Deuteronomy that he's doing this for his glory, for his name and for his purpose. And we are blessed because God has decided to choose us and make us something that we're that we certainly are, are not. And Joshua is the where. Where is God establishing a kingdom? It's obviously in the land of Canaan. And the important part of that is that is the promise to Abraham. So we can't get away from Abraham being in his homeland. And at some point in the future, 400 years after this promise to Abraham, that God is now keeping his word with an entire nation ready to go. And, of course, we've got a little bit of a of a uh, backstory of 40 years where they had to wander and God provided for them as well. Inside of Exodus is essentially the establishment of Israel's national charter. In other words, God, Exodus provides us their constitution. They are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a possession of God Himself. And He uses that language. He calls them My possession. And I wrote down a few a few passages here to kind of give you some of the key parts of their of their of their national identity. One of it is it's an inheritance. Uh, Exodus three chapter three verse seventeen. And I have said, I will bring you out of the land of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land with milk and honey. Then then they will heed your voice and and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord. There is a, a land that they're going. Their national charter that God gives them in Exodus includes a land. And it's a land full of def, definite people in the land of, uh, of Canaan. They also have protection. I, uh, I liked this one. The angel of the Lord went with them. The cloud and the fire. And the, the one of verses three of chapter three, verse eight. Then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign. That they may believe the message of the latter sign. And I must be in eighteen. I'm in chapter three. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, I was in chapter four, and I'm not even close. What was I thinking? I, I went off script here. <laughs> <laughs> um, the protection of angel of the Lord, chapter three, verse two. I wanted to make his reference. Uh, obviously, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Moses had the presence of the Lord with him in this in guiding him and telling him to go before Pharaoh and go and talk to him. And, and we also have laws, and you guys will remember these ones. This one's a little bit easier. Starting in verse uh, chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments being given on Mount Sinai. So this national, this Israel, this, this constitution they're getting is including laws. It includes ordinances. It includes how to take care of strangers. And in chapter 15, verse 11, he gives us another portion of this. And I, I love this, remembering uh, the song of Moses. Who is, like the lo- who is like you, O Lord? This is chapter 15, verse 11 who is like you among the gods who is like you glorious in holiness fearful in praises doing wonders the earth swallowed them you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation this is a promise there's multiple promises here one of them is that he purchases us that in this sense uh, Israel has been purchased by God himself and the other blessing that you see there at the end is that uh, that you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation The angel of the Lord went along with them to protect them and to to guide them all the way to Egypt, uh, from Egypt all the way up to Canaan. And what's important, too, is that God has prepared his people to be ready and fit for heaven. And that is also a blessing. He's preparing us for the holy habitation. And we find that also in Romans chapter 8, right? If you you go into Romans chapter 8, we are being prepared to be in the presence of God. So we have ordinances. We also have Passover. So part of this new nation, they're going to have new, uh, they're going to have Passover. They also are going to have a new calendar. So the way that God is doing things, he's changing everything about this people. He's getting them prepared and he's gonna prepare them also with the Sabbath. Exodus 15 verses 16. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as, uh, they will be as stone, as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord. So the people pass over whom you have purchased. So once again, he owns the people of Israel. And what we're setting up here is a monotheistic theocracy, right? We're, we're, we're setting up somebody where we have the, the we have Yahweh God, a monotheistic uh, belief system. And we have a nation now that worships just one God. And that is different than all the world has ever seen as well. So more succinctly defined in Exodus 19, five through six. Uh, a possession among all the peoples, Exodus 19, five through six, a possession among all the peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, they are a purchased possession. God has bought them. Here's the purpose statement of Exodus to recount to Israel her origin of redemption from exile and to document her national charter as a kingdom of priests to represent God to the nations. I'm going to get back to my slides here and see where I'm at So now we're going to get into some terminology that is used, some major themes. And you guys are going to remember these often, uh, very easily. One of the major, the most major theme is Yahweh, the name of the Lord. This was given to them for the first time. It was given to them as uh, given to Moses so that he would be prepared to talk to the people of Israel. And And this is what God says in chapter six, verse three. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God almighty. But by my name, Lord, or Yahweh, I was not known to them. And so we are now getting a new, a new experience or a new revelation of who God is. And he gives us this name, Yahweh. And so we find <laughs> the name Yahweh all throughout, uh, all throughout Exodus, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 22, chapter 3, verse 13. I just read six, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. 15 verse first uh, 3, 17 verse 15, 18 verse 3 and on. There's some other ones as well. We also get the theme of glory, honor, heaviness, harden, strength. We get these these other words that we that we're trying to as, as a as a believer. We're trying to understand why did God harden the heart of Pharaoh? Why did Pharaoh harden his heart against God? Why didn't he just listen after the first plague? Why didn't he listen after the second plague? Right. I could go on all the way to the 10th one. Finally, he listens after the 10th but not really. He hardens his heart and still chases them. Why didn't this man just give up and say, let these people out? We don't even like Jews. Let them out of here. They don't even want to be here. Yet they ended up getting their whole nation ransacked and losing all of their firstborn. These are, these are difficult concepts for, for many people. Um, but for us as believers, we understand that God's glory is also part of this process. And also God keeping his promise to an old man is part of this process. Uh, God will keep his word to Abraham. We can be sure of it because his entire scripture in the Old Testament and in the new describe a God who keeps promises. And so God's glory is always going to be a, a central focus of everything that happens. God gets glory by picking a, a little a young lady named Mary. God gets glory by picking a little ruddy young boy named David. God gets glory by picking an old man named Abraham who is an idol worshiper. God gets glory by allowing sinners to come to grace, to come to faith in Christ. So this is about God's glory, and Exodus certainly demonstrates that theme, and that's found throughout the book. Um, there are lots of uh, scriptures in your notes. Um, one thing I wanted to share as well, verse nineteen, uh, chapter nineteen, verse nine, is another little piece of a little nugget as well, and I wanted to share this with you in Exodus nineteen nine. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you. So he's on, he's on Sinai. The cloud comes over. People are scared at the bottom of the mountain that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. What a blessing is, is that God want a blessing. It is that God wanted everyone to know God was talking and God wanted to know that Moses would be his words would last forever. And so even today and even in the tribulation time, the words of Moses will be listened to and they will be read and they will be understood by believers who come to faith during that time. And that is a a great blessing for us that we believe Moses. Uh, And of course, we believe Moses because we believe Christ. These words, uh, glory and honor and Yahweh, these words are used a lot at the beginning when when God works with Pharaoh. In other words, those passages that says. That Pharaoh hardened his heart, or God hardened his heart. Uh, they used one of three different words to communicate it. And that word um, comes through as make heavy. The same word for glory. And also make strong, or make hard. And I think uh, if I get, we have enough time, uh, one of the interpretive issues is, uh, Jay gave me a couple pages of describing in Hebrew how these words are used, and we may have time to get to that. Um, But that word make heavy is the same word that's used for glory and make strong and make hard. The glory of the Lord also appeared appears to Israel at seven key points, several key points. And so now we get this this revealing of the glory of the Lord. Uh, Exodus 16, verse seven. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that we complain against you? So we start to see. The glory of the Lord also 33 verse 18. I'm reading out the new King James, by the way. And he said, please show me your glory. And Moses is up on the mountain and he wants to see, he wants to see God. And God says, I show my glory to whomever I want, but he says, I'll hide you in the, I'll hide you in the rock and I'll let my glory pass over you. And I will let you see my back. And you see, you get this idea of God willing to share his glory, willing to let us see or glimpse his glory. And we get that as well in Exodus. And of course, that carries us all the way through the New Testament. When God says, to, when Paul says through, uh, through the Holy Spirit, he says, can God take one lump of clay and make a vessel for honor and make a vessel for dishonor? And certainly his answer is he absolutely can. He can show his glory to whomever he wills. And so that starts that theology or that revelation of God starts in this place as well. And then in verse 22 of chapter 33, so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So we get to see this. We just we get this idea as human people of God consuming a mountain with his presence and then allowing one man to see his back. And that hadn't taken place. We have Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. We have Abraham having a dream, uh, meeting up with the angel of the Lord from time to time. But this is a different this is a different revelation that, than that. And so uh, that's what we get here as well. We also get the theme of sending, and you guys will you guys will realize this, right? Sending it is found throughout, and this terminology is kingly terminology, right? God is sending Moses and his brother Aaron to to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is sending his uh, Moses out. These kings are at war with each other, right? With all of their authority. They're God Yahweh is sending Moses every time. You think, why does this guy keep showing up if you're Pharaoh? I keep sending you out and I want to kill you every time. And then you come in after these plagues. And I want- I don't want you even want you here, but yet God has sent you. Yahweh has sent. Just imagine the frustration if you're if you're God on earth and God of all of heaven continues to force Moses into your presence. And this is this is just an amazing- it's just a tug-of-war, right? These are these. It's the idea of these two kings uh, are battling. And of course, it's not even a battle. God continues just to change his heart so that Moses can be before his presence. But how many times does God give um, give Pharaoh an opportunity to, to repent or to humble himself? He does many times, but yet it's never uh, a humility, a, a proper humility. It's hard to be God on earth and give it up, right? Uh, but yet there are there are kings who did. We have the kings of Babylon and the Medes and Persians that did, that they... That they uh, humbled themselves eventually, sometimes through grass and through seven years of uh, bending over as a cow. But certainly, that would be merciful too if Pharaoh would have done that. But notice how Yahweh's sending becomes more prominent as the story becomes uh, as the story progresses. Yahweh sends Moses and Aaron. Yahweh demands that Pharaoh send out his people, and this obviously is who's going to win this battle. Well, the greater king does. And the, and the little wimpy king is going to watch his entire nation be destroyed. And, uh, and so, uh, so God is going to get his glory. and He's taking his time uh, to, to prove to the world that Yahweh is the one true God. You can imagine here in Exodus that God is, God's glory is on display for the world. How long would it have been for the people to say, you know, it was dark, complete darkness in Egypt. I'm sure that that message would have spread throughout the entire world. In fact, so much so that I think Jethro found out about it, Moses' father, and and so here we have we have these we have these other people all over wondering what is going on in Egypt? Why is it? Why was this wailing here? And we find, if you read Samuel, that a few hundred years later, that the Philistines are still scared of Yahweh, who took the Egypt to who took the nation of Israel through the Red Sea, and they actually mention that they mention these are the people that God took through the Red Sea. We should be very careful if we're going to attack them. And what they end up doing, they, end up, they still end up going against Israel. And so uh, that's, that's the nature of our God. He gets his glory. We also have the theme of salvation. You, you are bought, you are rescued, you're delivered, you're ransomed, you're redeemed. All of these words would make sense to us as believers because this is our salvation. But for the Jew, these are new concepts. We've been purchased, we have been redeemed, we have been bought, we are being delivered, we're being rescued. Uh, These are all things that Moses wants to recount and remind the children of Israel, because hundreds of years later, even when Ezra and Nehemiah read the law as well, they're going to be reminded that they were purchased and they were redeemed and they were bought. They are not theirs. Yet that doesn't change their heart. They still wander away uh, from true from true worship for, for many more centuries. Exodus features and highlights a very powerful act of God that we are accustomed to. And that is salvation. God shows himself in this book to be a mastermind in redemption. He is the means of deliverance. He is the means of redemption. He is the means of bringing them out. He was the means for them getting to the land of Goshen. He was the means for allowing 70 something people to turn into millions of people over a 400 year period. Which again, that's a masterpiece in, in art because God is basically said, I'm going to bless the womb. I'm going to bless you out in the dirt. I'm going to bless you with, with the food to create a nation of 2 million people. Uh, that, is, that is huge. And that's what's happening here. God is the miracle was that they grew over 400 years to 2 million people uh, as they estimate. So we're seeing all of this happening and God is reminding them of his glory and that it should be at the, first, at the forefront of their thinking. Deliverance by the payment of a price. Yahweh puts forth an effort to deliver his people from Egypt. Exodus chapter 6, 2 through 5. This, here's the reason for the redemption. You're going to hear it over and over in the in the, in the Torah. The Abrahamic covenant, right? God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. And so God is preparing them to be able to move and to take over their land and to occupy it. We have the theme of holiness, and it's found in a number of places throughout throughout the Exodus. God's holiness, God's desire for His people to be holy, because God is holy, His people have to be holy. These are not these are not going to be pagans anymore. They're not going to be idol worshipers, Although that's exactly how they start. Uh, this is God. Um, Demonstrating to his people that they must be holy like he is holy. And so he's willing to describe himself as holy and about how his holiness works. He wants a people that has no idols. He wants a people that doesn't that honors their mother and father, that doesn't murder, that doesn't steal, that doesn't violate his commands. He doesn't want a group of people that are working seven days a week. He wants them to trust in a God who is merciful and gracious. Right, And that is the Ten Commandments. Right? Don't covet other people's stuff. You have your own stuff. I mean, I'm giving you the whole wealth of Egypt. Like these things all make sense to these people who are wandering through the wilderness and now getting ready to pass into the land. And Moses is you know, recounting all of these these travels with his people. And then we have we have holiness shown in Exodus chapter three, verse five. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place which you are on, which you are standing is holy ground. We also have the Sabbath. It's instituted. see how we're doing on time. It's instituted. It's a sign of the covenant with Israel. It testifies to the reality of who you are as God's people. We also have the purpose of manna, right? The purpose of manna is that none is to be gathered on the seventh day. So we're training. They're being trained for the Sabbath versus the seven day work week uh, of slavery. We also have the theme of patriarchs. We, have, we find that in chapter 2, verse 24, 7 and 6. Again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they, they remind even after 400 years and Joseph has passed and all of the, 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 the brothers have, have all passed away. Their nations still are there. They are still Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. They are still the people that God, they still identify with those 12 tribes. And they're told to identify with those 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes lead back to Abraham. And so they would not forget this. The actions of Exodus and connect, uh, is connected to God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are to remember their tribe, remember their nation, the people they are. Remember the God who promised an old man that they would have a land and an inheritance. This idea that somehow David Grant is going to be on Daniel the, Daniel the prophet's property in Israel is ridiculous. And it's ridiculous to think that you will be somehow on Moses' property in Israel. These, these men are waiting to have their inheritance. They're, they're waiting to receive uh, the promise to uh, to Abraham. And I read the other day, I hope I can find it because it, uh, it's just the end of the book of Daniel. It's just a very simple scripture, chapter 12, verse 13. And he tells Daniel, Daniel's wondering when the kingdom will come. And, and Daniel's told there'll be seven more years of Jacob's trouble, but don't worry, you go to sleep and don't worry about it. And Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Daniel is going to wake up in Israel and receive his inheritance. And it it will not have my family sitting on it, and it will not be a bunch of Gentiles sitting there. Uh, Daniel has been promised that he will wake up in his inheritance. And his inheritance will be in his land where he was taken as a young boy. And so it's important to remember that God is keeping his word to his people. And I don't think I mind that the Jews will be in Israel on their property. So we have covenants. We have the theme of covenants is also here. And we have the Abrahamic covenant. It's the basis for what happens at Sinai. We have the Old Covenant, Moses and the Sinaitic. And these are found in 19, verses the 3 through 6, 20 through, chapter 20 through 23. Uh, again, it's found in your notes. It's a means by which God will fulfill, in part, his promise to Abraham to bring a blessing to the nations. And the Old Covenant also is a means for the Israelite covenant based upon God's divine choice of Abraham. So this is God's attempt to bring a nation into into uh, order and to be able to show that God is God is keeping his promise to Abraham. Israel is to manifest in their lives the call of God. That's why they were given a new calendar, they were given a new charter, they were given new new ordinances, they were given Passover. That's why they were given such a send-off from Egypt. So the world would know that these people are God's people as we as is demonstrated throughout all the rest of history. These nations knew about about God and Yahweh, and I also had a another interesting tidbit I want you guys to consider. I think I already passed it, but that's good. This is this is great. You realize it was that was fourteen forty six BC is when Moses uh, brought the, the people of Israel out of Egypt, and it was in about nine ninety six that Solomon lived uh, and and established the kingdom in Israel. It has been over nineteen hundred and ninety years since Christ walked on the earth. It gives you the scope of how much time has has elapsed between the covenant that God gave Moses and the covenant that God gave Christ to give to us. We are way 500 years longer than what this original covenant was. The, the, The people of Israel did not wait as long in order to see Christ come. And yet Christ came about 1,990 years ago or so. So we are in those last days. And we have also the, the, the apostles and all the prophets are all waiting for this return of Christ. And of course, the Jews are waiting for the return of Christ so that they might inherit their land. And so um, we are blessed to be a part of this. So now I'm going to get into I'm going to talk about cake because this is the uh, this is the example that Jay gave me. All right. So a quick survey of uh, of the, uh, the, coven, the major covenants and how they work. Here's the Noahic Covenant, right? It's the biggest part of the cake. If I had a good, if I had a good picture here, you would see my little cake that he gave me, and the Noahic Covenant. It's the base of the cake. It's the biggest piece. You got to have the cake. You have a big base. Every creature in the world is included in this covenant. Even unbelievers benefit from it, right? We're going to have sea time and harvest, summer and winter. We're going to have those until the end, and and so that is a promise that everybody gets. Everybody gets to enjoy. Then we have the Abrahamic Covenant which is kind of narrowing its focus, right? It's smaller than the Noahic Covenant, but it's still quite large because um, when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, the Abrahamic Covenant is the one that's on display, right? We're going to see myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of believers, Gentiles and Jews, in the new heaven and the new earth, right? Uh, but it will be a new heaven and new earth and the Noahic Covenant won't be, uh, will, have been, will have been reconstituted in a different way, I suppose. Uh, in the new heaven and new earth. I'm, I guess I'm not worried about a flood in the new heaven and the new earth. So we'll see what that, what that becomes. But it's smaller than the Noahic covenant at this time because it, it filters to a group of people in the world. So at this time, the next layer of the cake is the Abrahamic covenant, which is I'm taking Jacob's children and their nation and I'm going to, I'm going to highlight them. Then we have the Davidic covenant that's on top of the Abrahamic covenant and that is smaller, but it focuses on one individual who will come through the Abrahamic covenant. The person who controls the Davidic covenant. Controls all the covenants. That's why it's on the top layer. So with the Davidic covenant. We have the Abrahamic covenant. And we have the Noahic covenant. On this big cake. And of course Christ is, is, is the focus of the Davidic covenant. We want a king. We want him to be there forever. We want him to rule in right righteousness. We realize that men cannot cannot lead righteously. That men are incapable of it. But there is a holy one. And his name has the name of God. And he will lead and he will rule from Israel. And he will be the last king that we have. Each of these covenants above are promises and they have they are promises and blessing. Um, that's why they are a cake. These are all wonderful things that we get to enjoy. They taste good. And God promises to deliver this cake to his people. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. These are all something that God does for us. We don't have a part in them. He created. He created the seasons. He took care of us. He's promised not to destroy the earth with water. He made a covenant with Abraham while he was asleep. He promised. He made a covenant between him and him, him and him and the son that they would bring this about by, this, by the power of the Spirit and the Davidic covenant. There's no man that can keep this covenant. So we obviously need a, a pure and holy and righteous king, and we can't do that either, right? We can't bring. A, uh, we can't have a virgin uh, have a child, and that child will grow up. And, and live sinless and perfect. But we can enjoy those blessings. And of course that's what we're doing. In this way, these covenants are unilateral. They're, they go one way. This is between God and giving these things to us. And that means that God is going to make them happen one way or the other. They are not bilateral. Meaning that it is not, they're not susceptible to the failure of one party. But now we get into the old covenant. And the old covenant is bilateral. You keep my word and keep my commands. I will bless you. You do not keep my commands. I will read you the end of Deuteronomy and I will give you two pages of of curses. I will give you one page of blessing and I'll give you two pages of curses. Actually, it's, it's actually more like this many blessings and this many curses, right? And so it's, it is bilateral. It is not unilateral like the others. It's not so much a part of, uh, it's not so much a part of the cake. It's rather the administrator of the other covenants. It's the serving platter that delivers the blessings of God's to God's people. And so Jay is wanting us to look at the cake on the platter of the old covenant and realize that platter is not a good platter. Right. Because if we fail, there's no way for us to continue to to keep it. We we need help. We need strength. The problem with the old covenant is that it is very poor. It is very poor serving apparatus. It's like serving a large wedding cake on a paper plate. Right? The old covenant is a paper plate, not because it itself is deficient; it's not deficient. It, it's perfect. It's rather, it's because it's dependent upon Israel to uphold their end of the covenant, which they can't. So we're the paper plate. We're the wet, soppy thing that can't hold anything. We can't. We can't keep God could promise us all eternity, and if it was by our own, if it was by our own effort, we'd all go to hell. Right? That's that's the concept. And so we need the strength of the Holy Spirit. We need the strength of God's complete sovereignty to say. No, I'm going to give you my glory. I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to make you into the image of my son. I'm going to conform you to his image. We also get to see these blessings in the new covenant. And I wanted to to read this. I think I've got 1013. I think I've got some time. If not, if I don't get done, I'll let J.K. go. Romans chapter 8. If you're ever wanting to uh, encourage yourself or anybody else, uh, just read these 39 verses. Uh, Our blessings that we have in as believers in Christ, start with chapter 8, verse 1. After going through chapter 7, which is we're freed from the law, but yet we still do this sin. Chapter 7 is, 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 is horrific for the believer. Like, I don't want to sin, yet I still sin. I want to be released from this, but I still fall. Chapter 8 freshens everything up. And the, the, the chapter 8 starts out with, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the platter that we have now in the New Testament is we have a covenant where we don't have to. We don't we don't remember our sins in the sense that we don't hold them. They're not held against us. There's no condemnation. We have the blessing of the spirit in chapter uh, chapter eight, verse nine. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So believers now have the Holy Spirit within them. This is different. This is a, a wonderful platter, a wonderful blessing. The Holy Spirit prays for us verse uh, chapter eight, verse 27. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the, the saints according to the will of God. We have a partner in our lives now through the Holy Spirit that prays the perfect will of God. It takes every prayer he makes and it makes it perfect before the father and before the son. That is a blessing that we have in the, in the new, in the new covenant. We also have a maker who has promised us to make us like Christ. For whom he foreknew, this is verse twenty-nine. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. There is a promise in Scripture that you will become like Christ, and that is a blessing we receive in the New Covenant as well. We are also sealed. We have an undying. We have an undying uh, uh, holding by the Father and by the, the Holy Spirit and by the Son. Verses thirty-eight and thirty-nine. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we have his love and his protection eternally. As believers, we have a very strong footing in the new covenant. So the new covenant, it becomes a much better platter, right? The new covenant replaces and outdoes the old covenant. If you read Hebrews, you took John, uh, John Adamson's class. Jesus is the better everything. He's the better sacrifice. It was one time. He's the better. He's the better king. He's the better leader. He's the better ruler. He's the better everything. And that's what we find in Hebrews is Christ is demonstrated as the better. He's the better Adam. He's better at everything. And we know that because he has fixed all the flaws of us by giving us his Holy Spirit and making sure that we become like his son. Uh, then we get this word Yahweh. And so we want to go back to this for a few minutes and we want to consider uh, additional things. God has given us his name in, in Exodus chapter and it is it is I am who I am is how it's, it's uh, translated for us. It is it means he is or will be or he causes or causes to be. And so this is basically God saying I'm sovereign and I want you to know that I, am, I control all things. But it's more of a descriptor of his name. He just gave us Yahweh in chapter six, verse three. He reveals himself. He's revealing himself to Moses here a few chapters before that. But it's more of a descriptor. Uh, it is. Uh, it is his name. It is a name. It is. It includes knowledge of Yahweh, and it includes fear of Yahweh. And so we are to be to be careful, uh, the the, ch- the children of Israel, are to be careful now that they know who this God is, who Yahweh is. And that they're they're being told to glorify him and to obey him and to keep his words. And so they're learning um, that they must be obedient. We also have the Passover and Unleavened Bread. These are other themes of chapter 12, 13, 23, and 34. We have the Decalogue. Uh, these are some other terms as well. Ten Commandments, as you guys, have we, as we've all learned over the years. But it really more accurately just says the ten words is what it means. The ten words. And they're not just external. Um. We, we, we don't just see an external outward. We, we also are, uh, we, we, some of these speak to the heart, which is do not covet, right? That's a, that's a heart condition. Do not murder. That's desiring someone, you know, desiring to hurt someone. So these, these are, um, many of these commands seem to be external, but they also reflect a person of the heart that's been changed by faith in Yahweh. We also have the tabernacle, and we have the, the furnishings for that tabernacle. God dwelling with them so that they would have a reminder that God is truly with them. As the cloud comes over the tabernacle, Moses hears from Yahweh. The the children of Israel get to see this and they get to know oh, the clouds over the tent. Something's going on in there. And certainly Moses is in there hearing from God. So they had a communication, a line of communication. They had Moses as a mediator, which was not was not necessarily a term that was uh, in Exodus. And they have the tabernacle was the point of connection with Yahweh and his people. And it was a place where God's presence indwelt his people. Uh, there was a corporate indwelling for a corporate nation. Just imagine you don't have the Holy Spirit within you, but God comes to dwell with you and you get to see it. And that that would have been uh, a sight to behold. Certainly knowing that God was in the camp. It would make you very, very, very comfortable knowing that God was still hanging out with you. And I think I think the curse is the other side of it. Right. Like, where did God go? Why is he, why he come back? Um, that's also a blessing, right? To come to, the word, come to hear preaching this morning from Steve and, and to be led into worship. We realize we want God's presence and we want to be with God's people and we want to hear God's word. And so that's why we gather together so that we're not wandered off so far. We're not missing a, a few months in a row or something and realizing, I don't hear God anymore. Well, he speaks every Sunday morning through Steve if you'll come, right? Or through a sermon on, online, you can hear. Um, God, God is still talking and he's given us his word. And so anyway, this was what was lost at Eden is for Israel to uh, into is to, a, to, is to Israel a certain uh, to a certain extent. It's restored. Having the tabernacle is like Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the evening with with the angel or with with God's God's. That's Jesus. I'll just say it that way, but walking with him. And so uh, this is kind of back again. We're like, yes, we get to be in the presence of God. We get we saw God part the Red Sea, but now we get to we get to see him as a cloud coming. We know he's still there. And we saw him in the evening and the fire to keep us warm and to cover us in the day. But now we get to know that he's still here. And, uh, and so he's changing their relationship ever so much as they as they get through and they get into their promised land here in a few years uh, at the end of uh, in, at the beginning of Joshua. So mankind was to serve and to guard in Eden. And now in the tabernacle, the Levites were to serve and to guard. And so now we, we still have the same kind of same kind of thing. We have now have a nation of people. And a tribe that is now set for the order of worship and set for the order of protecting and preparing for the service of God. Jesus came and he dwelt. It means that he tabernacled. And so Jesus is doing the same thing. He is dwelling among us. He did as just a baby. He dwelt among them as a baby. He dwelt among them during his ministry. And now he dwells in us. He sent the Holy Spirit. And so he still, in every in every sense, is still within us and uh, has Come and join Himself. He's abiding in us and we abide in Him. And so we, we know that presence. We hear His word. Uh, the literary structure is pretty simple, simplistic in this one. Uh, as far as my notes tell me, uh, Israel's na- national origin of redemption is chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, verse 27. That's the story of them being brought out. And then Israel's national charter as priestly representatives, chapter 19 through the end of the uh, 240, 38. Is the second part. So we have, you know, two parts. We have God bringing them out, and then God setting them up, starting their nation, changing their calendar, giving them uh, commands, giving them laws, giving them rules, because they were to be different than everyone else, and they were not to be like the rest of the nations. And God, purposed in Himself to keep His keep His promise to Abraham and create a nation of Jews and Gentiles that would bring in, would worship Him. And so God is demonstrating that through the, through the Exodus. All right. That ends those notes. Any questions? It's 1021. I do have the interpretive issues and it's about the hardening of uh, Pharaoh's heart. Are there any other, uh, any questions that I can answer? This is a great narrative. It's a great reminder of uh, how uh, Christ has saved us, how Christ has brought us through, how God is keeping his promises to Abraham. Those things are all extremely important to remember because God is a God who keeps His word, and He's certainly holy, and He expects us to be holy as well. Well, I'll, I'll touch on some of the some of the narrative here that He gave me on the interpretive issues, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, who did it, and there was also the bridegroom of blood, that, that little story in there where where Moses' uh, child is not yet circumcised, and so the the, the mother does, and then throws the throws the uh, biological tissue at, at the ground. And you know, there's this, this idea that, that, that there's an angel coming after them. Um, pretty scary, pretty scary thing. Um, so we'll talk about that here just for a couple minutes. Uh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, who did it? And uh, here's where my, here's my, my Hebrew goes really bad. Hazak, Lebeb, Lebeb, H-A-Z-A-Q-L-E-B it's to be strong of heart these are the phrases that are used in this in this in the in the text here and that's in uh, chapter 4 verse 21 713 it's it's found in 819 9, 12, 35 so so what he's doing for me he's he gave me all of these passages where that uh, hazak leb was used there's also kabed leb uh k a b e d uh it's to be heavy of heart and that's found in exodus 714 815 uh, in verse 32 Again, another example of these phrases being used to harden or, or hardened or should be strong of heart. And then there's uh, Q-A's, Q-A-S-A-R-L-E-B. That's to be hard of heart. I'm not going to try to say that when I have no clue how they do a Q in, in Hebrew. So what, he, what Jay did, because he is a Hebrew scholar and I'm just a regular guy. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he gave texts where Yahweh is the subject of the verb of the hardening. Uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 21, I will strengthen his heart. Chapter 7, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. These are all kind of the same usage of these verbs. Uh, chapter 9, verse 12, Yahweh strengthened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, verse 1, I have hardened his heart. And so uh, that's the text where Yahweh is the subject. And he's got, he's got a few more. 10, 20, 10, 27, 11, 10, 14, 4, 14, 8, 14, 17. I hope maybe he's giving you these notes or he can give them to you. Um, they weren't in his slides yet, but uh, they're, they're pretty cool where all these different uh, verb uses are used. There also are texts where Pharaoh is the subject of the verb, where he hardened his heart. That's 8 and 15, 832, 934, 713, 714. So these are where Pharaoh... I'm sorry, That's those those passages... I'm sorry, let me, let me step back. Pharaoh hardens his heart in 815, 832, and 934. But there's also text in which no agent is specifically mentioned. So we're not talking about Yah- Yahweh, and we're not talking about Pharaoh. We just simply have a hardening, and that's chapter seven, verse thirteen. This, these are these are texts where there was no agent, there was no person that was somehow forcing or causing this. Seven thirteen, Pharaoh's heart was strengthened. Seven fourteen, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Seven twenty two, Pharaoh's heart was strengthened. Eight nineteen, Pharaoh's heart was strengthened. So. Again, nine, nine, seven, and nine thirty-five. These are all examples of using the the verb with the Q on it. Q a s a r l e b to be hard of heart, just to have a hard heart. So, which is it? How many of you guys know the answer? Did Pharaoh harden his heart, and did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Does anybody have a problem with that idea? Not asking for questions, right? Does God not have the right to take one lump of clay and to make one a vessel of honor and one a not honor? That, that, that came from Moses' conversation with God. That, that passage in Romans came from Moses' uh, uh, discussion with God that you find in Exodus. And what is God's response? I can show my glory to whomever I want. And so that's, that's a theme. God's glory and God's holiness is his and his alone to share. And the key here is that I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. That's Exodus fourteen four, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Exodus fourteen seventeen. God's glory is on display. And yes, was his heart hardened by God? Absolutely. Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we find in the text. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with that. God, for his own purposes and his own glory, is at work. I think we're out of time. You guys can uh, talk to Jay about the bridegroom of blood. <laughs> Have fun with that one. Yeah, he's got some other ones as well, but they weren't in the slides. Let's close in prayer and we'll uh, join the rest for, for worship this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this time to be together to, to open your word and to go a little deeper into Exodus. Thank you so much for your sovereignty. Thank you for giving us your name. We will, we will be saying your name as we read and as we sing this morning, Yahweh. We will we know you as God. We know you as the Almighty. We know you as our, our Redeemer and our Savior. We know you as the promise keeper and as the Holy One. We know you as our our soon coming King. We know you because you revealed yourself to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we believe Moses' words. We thank you that we believe Moses' words and we believe Jesus' words because we are born of you. We thank you for your Spirit. We thank you that this uh, next few Next few minutes, we'll be together to be able to worship you and your son. We thank you that your Holy Spirit unites us in one. And we thank you that uh, we have forgiveness of sin and we have redemption through the blood of Christ. We have been purchased and you own us. And we are grateful uh, for your for your goodness and your kindness to us. Prepare our hearts uh, for worship together. We thank you so much for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.